We are now on episode seven of the Merit Mindset Podcast. I'm Devin Merritt, your host, and welcome aboard. Have you ever felt torn between finishing up that last bit of work and attending your child's soccer game? Or perhaps you've been on a romantic dinner date only to be interrupted by a work email that you felt compelled to answer? In today's fast-paced world, the battle between our professional and personal lives is real and intensifying. And in the world of industrial organizational psychology, this is the world of work-life conflict. So just to make sure that we're all on the same page uh, with this, um, what psychologists call theoretical constructs, uh, work-life balance um, has some pretty uh, specific parameters that we need to understand as we move forward talking about it. Um, a lot of psychologists have um, defined work-life conflict as a form of integral conflict in which the role pressures from the work and family domains are mutually incompatible. That is, participation in the work role is made more difficult by virtue of participation in the family role and vice versa. Um, so to kind of just like that's the scientific and the, the technical term and how we go about defining work-life conflict. But let's just kind of paint a picture of this phenomenon by imagining this scenario. So imagine a person who spends about 75% of their waking life at work. They sleep for about eight hours, spend about an hour and a half to two hours getting ready for work and then traveling to work. And then they work at least a nine hour day. And by the time they get home, they've spent about five, well, not sorry, they haven't spent about, they have about five to five and a half hours left to eat dinner, wind down maybe spend a little bit of time with the family and then they go to bed and repeat the whole cycle again. Now imagine that this person hates their job. They spend a majority of their 16 hour day, nearly eight to 10 hours uh, getting ready for a job they hate and working in an environment that they wouldn't or don't really want to be in. Now imagine further, that this person doesn't just hate their job, but they are also mistreated by their boss. They're often criticized, ridiculed, humiliated, and in extreme cases, traumatized. Now imagine after a long grilling day, that person goes home to a family where maybe the spouse is burnt out from dealing with whiny kids all day long. Maybe the house is a mess. And maybe the environment at home altogether is turned upside down. Again, uh, your spouse has been dealing with the kids all day long. <laughs> the hardest job in the world, by the way. They need your help maintaining the house or you miss some important events in your child's life, whether it was going to like a soccer game or a football game or volleyball game, softball, uh, dance or piano recital or any other kind of special program or event at school. Maybe your kid was giving a presentation and it would have been really cool to have been there, 
but your work just wouldn't give you the opportunity to do that. Um, so you compile all this, your boss is frustrated with you for not putting enough time into your job and your family's frustrated with you for not putting enough time with them. These two demanding roles, uh, the two most demanding roles in most people's lives is work and family. And as that definition suggests, sometimes, uh, depending on the structures and, and cultures and societies that we live in, uh, work and family sometimes mutually incompatible um, because they both demand so much of your time. There's just not enough hours in the day to get everything done that you'd like to get done. Uh, to take this a little bit further, especially with this example for this poor soul that we're referring to, both entities, the work and the family, are both extremely frustrated with this person because they don't have enough hours in the day to appease both of them. So you're basically falling short in both avenues. And as an individual, that's a recipe to make you feel like you are failing at life. So let's go back again to this person going through this difficult, impossible situation of trying to meet the demands of both family and the demands of work. Um, imagine after being dragged across coal by their boss and family, these people are now feeling extremely incompetent, extremely unappreciated, and definitely not valued. Um, because of this overwhelming feeling that they pretty much just, uh, for lack of better expression, suck at everything that they're trying to accomplish. Do you think that this person is going to be kind, patient, happy, and eager to help and be at home or at work? Uh, amidst all this conflict at work and all this conflict at home, when they finally get home, they're being told they're not present enough for the family. Um, and then you're being told that work, you're not following through on projects enough, or your head's not in the game or whatever other expression you can think of. Uh, suppose that this person ends up getting into an explosive fight with their spouse. Um, this fight is so ugly that the effects of the fight end up dragging out through the night and into the early morning. And you haven't really resolved the exchange before you went to work. So you go to work in a terrible mood because of this familial exchange. And your coworkers are going to pick up on this. They're going to feel your attitude and your, your exhaustion and your negativity, which is then going to serve to create another bad day at work, which will create another problem with your boss, which turns into this person coming home after a really, really bad day. And then they end up going through the same talking points and dynamics with family. So it's like both of these dynamics, work and life, uh, the relationship between an exchange between these um, two things is bi-directional. Um, in other words, sometimes the demands of work, whether that's too much pressure from your boss or excess job stress or irregular hours or personality clashes or toxic relationships, unexpected travel, last minute shift extensions where you have to work longer because of a meeting or whatever, all of these demands will get in the way of the demands of family, like being at home on time for dinner or making it to games or sporting events or recitals or helping with dinner or helping run errands or assisting with household needs and so forth. Both of these two demands just constantly demanding a person's time. Um, and it's kind of interesting because that's that's just how work gets in the way of family. But other times the demands of family 
like having young children that disrupt your sleep, uh, divorce or other marital problems, health issues, family members that think you spend uh, too much time at work or whatever. Um, these demands all get in the way of the demands of work, which then results in poor performance. So it's really work-life conflict, this bi-directional process where work impacts the family and family impacts the work um, can put people in impossible situations. And these impossible situations um, can lead to some pretty uh, horrible and tragic circumstances. Um, so for example, let's just return again to our example of this individual, this cycle keeps repeating itself. And finally, this person just becomes a part of a statistic that was published in 2015, where, um, 120,000 people a year die because of work-life conflict. Um, and a lot of this is attributed to added pressures of work and family, uh, because of how intense both of these pressures can be. Um, this individual ends up committing suicide. Um, and this, again, this is a, a dramatic um, and worst case scenario outcome for a lot of the uh, work-life conflict um, outcomes. But again, this is just to highlight a complex dynamic known in the world in industrial organizational psychology as work-life conflict. Some uh, people revere work-life conflict uh, excuse me, I don't know if I like tripped over my words on that. Bless my heart. Uh, work-life conflict. Some revere this issue of work-life conflict, just in case I wasn't clear. Hopefully I'm clear now. Uh, they view it as a public health matter, um, especially when you look at the statistics surrounding workplace conditions and suicide. For example, the, uh, the census of occupational injuries estimate that about one to 3% of suicides are attributed to factors related to work. Uh, furthermore, the National Violent Death Reporting System reports that 13.5% of suicides are related to work. So we're getting some mixed data here. Some sources are saying it's 1% to 3% of suicides. Other reports are saying it's 13.5%. So there's, there's a pretty range, a wide range of uh, data attributing that. But um, one thing that these sources seem to agree on is that work stress, job loss, and job-related financial stress have been identified as suicide risk factors. So here we are talking about the um, issues and complexities of work-life conflict and how we can hopefully, as employers and employees, reduce its presence in our life. I think it's important as a psychologist and as an advocate for employee well-being in the workplace and everything like that. I, <clears throat> excuse me, I probably should have cleared my throat before I started recording. Um, but uh, I, I think while we we advocate for these ideals, I also think it's important for us as advocates for employees uh, in the workplace, we also need to be realistic and understand some of the purposes of a business. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be some people who are going to um, potentially disagree uh, with what I'm about to say here. Um, but why I think about this and it's why does a business exist? What what's its purpose? Um, and something that I think we all need to understand is that a business exists to make money. 
if it's not making money, it's not a good business. Now, I know there's going to be a lot of people who are going to cite probably some uh, Western um, cultural perspectives with what I've just said, and that's fine. But I mean, for better or for worse, the focus of a business should be on this, this idea of making money, because if it's not financially flourishing, how is it supposed to take care of the needs of its employees? Um, a commonly held perspective is the that's currently embraced is that happier employees are more productive employees. Um, in fact, there's a few uh, studies, and I'll include links to these studies in the description of the episode if anybody's interested in looking at them. But a study in Oxford estimated that happier employees are about 13% more productive than other employees. Um, another study from the University of Warwick Warwick, excuse me, quoted research that estimated a 12% increase in productivity when employees are happy. And Forbes published uh, research that said uh, employees that are happier are 20% more productive. So again, wide range of data and statistics, but those increases can mean a lot for big businesses, especially when you start thinking about productivity and making money. So what came first, uh, the chicken or the egg? Does making people happier increase productivity or does productivity make people happier? Some of the research that's been um, conducted has been done in lab settings, which means we're not just talking about correlation, um, relationships where we can make predictions, but with correlational research, um, anybody who's taken uh, research methods in college knows, for example, that you cannot infer causation from correlational research. Some of the more popular dramatic examples out there is that you look at statistics and you, you can observe a correlation between ice cream sales and drowning. In other words, as ice cream sales increase, drowning increases as well. Excuse me. And people who are not familiar with research methodology will hear that kind of a thing and they'll say, well, wait a minute, how does ice cream sales make people drown? And it's like, well, it doesn't. That's correlational research. It's not cause and effect. There's usually other variables at play there that are contributing to why ice cream sales and drowning are so strongly related. It's not because they are directly related. It's because of heat. There's a third variable or a confounding variable, whatever expression you want to use, that explains that relationship better. When it's hot outside, people buy more ice cream. When it's hot outside, people swim more. And when people swim more, they're more likely to drown. So you have other variables that explain that relationship. Now, when we say for research perspectives that something's been done in a lab setting, we're not talking about correlational research here. We are actually talking about cause and effect. Um, and what some of this research has found, again, cause and effect is that making employees happier at work, even if that just means letting them watch a 10 minute uplifting video clip, that has been shown to increase productivity by 20%. So if you make people feel better, you make people happier uh, while they're at work, a lot of the research indicates a cause and effect relationship that, that caring about the well-being and happiness of your employees um, can increase their productivity. Um, so... Again, just to kind of summarize that little tangent, what we're saying is from these types of studies, we know that creating happiness first causes or can cause greater levels of productivity. I think that's an important principle to, 
to realize and understand is that happiness can come first and then happiness leads the productivity. Um, the tricky question though, uh, for me at least is this, should businesses be focused on making money or making their people happy? And in philosophical terms, maybe that's a, a false dichotomy. Maybe there are some other alternatives to that. Um, but I think it's an interesting uh, thing to consider nonetheless. If making money is the priority, wouldn't you want to implement measures that would make your employees happier so they will ultimately be more productive and make the business more money? Theoretically speaking, I mean, this makes perfect sense. But where it gets even trickier, for me at least, is that if things will make employees happier, but it will actually drain productivity and harm the money-making capacity of the business, what should the business do? Um, for example, if my employees would be happier not having to contact upset customers, but then customer issues don't get resolved and ultimately revenue is negatively impacted, then I probably don't want to opt for that kind of incentive for my employees because the purpose of a business, after all, is to make money, not to needlessly throw it away. So um, I think we have to be realistic with some of the things that we might implement into our workplace for the sake of making our employees happier. Um, but again, um, there seems to be a lot of reason to suspect or make a case that our focus should be uh, building happiness first. At least that's what a lot of the evidence seems to uh, suggest. Um, treating employees with respect, treating them equitably with their pay and work, creating work-life balance, providing meaningful work, and giving recognition for work done well are cr uh, critical employment. Excuse me, <laughs> I can't talk. Critical components for employers. Um, these are the kinds of things that eliminate the presence of work-life conflict. Let me just reiterate some of those things. When you treat your employees with respect, when you treat them equitably with their pay and their work, when you create work-life balance, when you provide meaningful work, and when you give them recognition for work that has done well, employers would do well and benefit well from implementing those kinds of practices into their organizations. Um, and I kind of just pose these questions to any of my listeners who might be business owners. What are your answers to these questions? Do people finish a day of work at my organization psychologically broken, feeling unaccomplished, un unfulfilled, or unappreciated? Uh, or how does working for my company impact the family of my employees? Do people working for my company feel satisfied, taken care of, and supported? Um what are your answers to those questions, employers? Um, and if you're starting to find, and maybe you should ask your employees that question. And if you start to find that a lot of your employees are answering these questions negatively, then that could give you some alarming uh, feedback that you could change quickly and probably increase the success of your business based off what the scientific research says. Um, it's kind of interesting. I reflect on my own journey of pursuing industrial organizational psychology, and there's this book called Fish. And one of the parts of this book called Fish, it reveals this staggering statistic. And it's the one that I used in the beginning of this intro when I asked you to consider that scenario of the worker who works too much. But a statistic that they cite in this book is that uh, most human beings, 
who work, they spend about 75% of their waking life working. And I'm not entirely sure how they calculate that number, but I remember stumbling across that statistic when I was a young undergraduate psychology student. It, it's, it hit me hard and it played a pivotal role in my desire to study industrial organizational psychology as a profession. And it's unfortunate for the world of psychology because a lot of people hear psychology and they think therapist or mental health professional, counseling, whatever. And that's definitely a popular profession within psychology, but there's so much more out there in the field than just becoming a therapist. And I often tell people I know that if they love psychology, but they don't want to study it because they don't want to become a therapist, then they should still study psychology because there's so much more to it than that. And industrial organizational psychology is one of those avenues that people can specialize in that has nothing to do um, with mental health and mental health services. But if I'm being totally honest, I actually still want to earn credentials to become a clinical psychologist. I cherish mental health and I, I love that discipline and I love that field. And I think it has so much to offer. Um, getting into those clinical PhD programs is extremely difficult though. Um, statistically speaking, your odds of getting into medical school are greater than getting into a PhD program for clinical psychology. Um, but that's a conversation for another day. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to digress on that little tangent, but most students of psychology will say that they're wanting to go into psychology because they want to help people. And that's not a particular useful, a particularly useful response because I mean, saying you want to study psychology because you want to help people is like saying you want to drink water because you're thirsty. Um, it's extremely obvious uh, that that's why you're studying psychology. And so if people are interested in pursuing this discipline, I think a better way uh, to think about why you want to pursue psychology is to be able to answer the question of why you want to use psychology to help people. Um, and that'll probably give you a little bit better of a reaction to graduate schools that you apply to when you can talk about how you want to use psychological theory to improve the lives of people. And that's, that's what I did in my, uh, my letters to graduate programs, I was thinking about industrial organizational psychology and how I wanted to help people more. And I couldn't stop thinking back to this statistic. You spend about 80% of your waking of your waking life working. What if you hate your job? Just think about that again for a moment. If you spend 80% of your life working, but you hate your job, what does that mean? I'll give you just a couple seconds to think about that because the the scary reality is that means that that person probably hates about 80% of their life. And that is horrible. And so I, using my educational goals and my pursuits, I wanted to understand dynamics that contribute to toxic work environments, as well as predict the effects of those toxic work environments. So I could better help organizations with things like organizational commitment, employee disengagement, turnover, job satisfaction, and so forth. And if my logic is correct, the way I interpret it is that if people hate their jobs, fixing the workplace and the individuals who work there could be an avenue where I'm not just helping people enjoy their jobs more, but I'm hopefully helping them enjoy their lives more. And that that's a... A meaningful difference. And that's, that's why I love industrial organizational psychology, because we've established a series of practices and methodologies 
that can help eliminate the presence of work-life conflict in the workplace and in people's lives. I once heard a hilarious quote that said psychologists have a problem for every solution. And so I don't want to use my little podcast platform as an opportunity to just complain about factors and dynamics at work without offering some kind of solution to get those conflicts of or conflicting dynamics of works uh, resolved. So there's two different avenues that we can look at. First of all, we can look at what employers could implement or what employees could be aware of to help reduce work-life conflict. And I'm going to give you five simple practical uh, examples here um, for employees to be aware of or for employers to uh, implement. Number one, allow for flexible work arrangements. Yes, have expectations of your employees, but allow for autonomy with how and where they can get that done. If that means occasionally working from home or letting them work earlier or later, the thing that should matter most to the employer is if the work is getting done. If they can get it done, does it really matter where or how they get it done? Number two, establish boundaries. If you're expected to work from eight in the morning until five, you shouldn't be expected to take phone calls outside of those hours. When people are home, let them be home. Send them an email and let them address the issue in the morning. Unless a building is on fire or someone has died, is there a problem so serious that it cannot wait a few hours until the next morning? Communicate with your bosses or your employees and let them know that when they're home and let them be home. That's, that is something for employers to consider, okay? Number three, be supportive. Um, if your employee has a loved one that's going through a serious medical condition, ask them how you can help and respect the time they need to be with their family. If they qualify and your organization meets the federal requirements, openly and freely talk about uh, family medical leave or the FMLA leave uh, with your employees. Let them make, make sure that they're aware of this policy if your organization is required to implement it. And if you're unfamiliar with uh, FMLA or if your company even has an FMLA policy, now's your chance to put a reminder in your phone to talk to your HR department about FMLA leave to help understand how it works. Um, I would say it here, but I don't want to give you information overload. Returning to the idea of creating a culture of support, don't make your employees feel pressured to come back to work when they're worried about their loved one. Putting pressure on them to come back to work in the middle of a personal need or crisis will only fuel resentment and lower organizational commitment. So again, be supportive. Number four, almost said three again, bless my heart. Number four, create a positive culture. Psychologists know that one of the most important things you can do in your companies is to have a positive culture. Firms like the Towers Watson have declared that a positive culture is one of the top five reasons employees are overly stressed. If you can create a culture of care and respect for the lives of your team members, the presence of work-life conflict will significantly diminish. Number five for employers, train and develop family supportive managers. If you're unsure of how your people can be better prepared to be supportive of employee needs, check out the work, the work family and health network. Uh, the acronym is WFHN and their intervention program called STAR, which stands for support, transform, achieve results, STAR. This program was created and developed by uh, Harvard University 
what this group discovered was how work family conflict can affect people's sleep, energy levels, blood pressure, and exercise habits. It can even affect their parents' relationships with their children. The main idea is simple. Train your supervisors and managers to be family supportive. Benefits and perks of this approach uh, excuse me, include lower levels of work-family conflict, higher job satisfaction, lower intention to job change, uh, or change jobs, excuse me, and higher reports of physical and mental health. And those employees, uh, blood pressure at work was higher than it was when measured at non-work times and sleep quality was predicted by work-family conflict. So you've got a lot of different outcomes depending on how supportive your managers are. And so this program is input to help organizations develop um, managers who are going to be better prepared to uh, be supportive at uh, issues pertaining to their employees' personal lives regarding their families especially. Now that we've uh, given employers a bunch of suggestions, let's talk about employees and think about different factors that they could implement into the workplace to help reduce the presence of work-life conflict. Number one, set boundaries. Um, Just like we said with the employers to set boundaries, we're also going to say that with the employees. Set boundaries. Uh, I'll never forget an exchange that I had with a CEO. Um, I was on a date with my wife, which hardly ever happens. Uh, just because of how busy we both get from time to time between work and kids and everything like that. But I was on a date with her and he called me and I didn't answer his phone call. And the next day he was kind of perturbed with me because it was a matter of like, why didn't you call me back? Uh, I wanted to talk to you last night. And I just explained to him, I said, look, it's a rare opportunity for me to be able to go on dates with my wife. And uh, when it does happen, I'm not going to let anything get in the way of that. And it was really cool because rather than getting me getting ticked off at me for saying that, he was actually very supportive of it. And he said that he needed to be more like me in that regard. And uh, that was a cool experience for me. So again, set, set clear boundaries. Unless a building is on fire or someone has died, I will not answer the phone if I'm with my family. Number two, turn off your phone. If having your phone is too much of a temptation for you to check emails or send text messages, turn your phone off or turn off notifications for certain apps. Um, As a professor, uh, I used to get emails from students at about two or three o'clock in the morning. And when I had notifications set up on my phone for emails, I'd get woken up uh, by those emails. So I'd have disturbed sleep and then I'd be less effective as as a teacher, as a as a husband, as a father. And so I turn notifications off from my phone for emails, especially if it's in the evening time and I can get to those emails in the morning. Now, depending on the day, sometimes I am guilty and I do check, but by and large, if I'm at home hanging out with my wife, family, or friends, I'm not distracted by little notifications pinging on my phone all the time. Number three, consider your work environment. Uh, We live in a time where working from home is far more common and acceptable, but one of the biggest problems with working from home is this idea of spillover where work spills into your personal life and your personal life spills into work because you're not really able to uh, separate them uh, 
when you're working from home. And so maybe if this is an issue for you, maybe you should consider checking in and seeing if your organization offers a hybrid approach. That way you'll be able to keep work at work and home at home. I understand that this isn't always possible, but it's definitely something to think about. Number four, if you are a working spouse and or parent, consider taking time off. And when you're taking time off, don't bring your phone with you or turn it off. I made a stupid mistake once of taking a vacation at a horrible time and I ended up having to be on my phone and laptop for most of the vacation. My employer and my family were both very unhappy with me during that whole process. So don't do what I did and plan accordingly, but make sure that you disconnect from work when you're on vacation. Number five, always let your focus be on building relationships. Whether you need to communicate with your family or your employer, make sure that your communication is geared towards building relationships. Don't be rude, don't be condescending or disrespectful in your communication. Rather, be clear, concise, and professional. If you're gonna be gone or you need a night off, let your employers know so that they know not to bother you or to gear their calls towards somebody else if they really need to get hold of you, especially if you have special events planned. And vice versa, if you've got important work projects or deadlines, communicate ahead of time with your family and let them know, hey, tonight or next week's gonna be a little bit of a rough one. Um, just so that there's, you're managing expectations essentially. Um, in other words, over-communicate to avoid misunderstandings and or frustrations. All right, that's going to wrap it up for episode seven of the Merit Mindset podcast. But out of all of the suggestions that I've offered, five for employers and five for employees, which ones are you going to start applying into your workplace right now?